0: Welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I am David Bax. And thank you for listening. David. Yes. Big day.
1: It, it is a big day.
0: Why is it a big well, day for you? Well, first of all, what I know why it is for me. Why is it for you?
1: Well, I'm a little harried going into this cuz I've just had a, a, about the worst day at my job since I've started there and oh I my actually gosh. have to go back to work when we're done recording. Seriously? Yeah, it was a it was a crazy day. Oh my god, you got to quit that job. But uh I've put it out of my mind. Right. Yes. B- because we've we've uh we we've landed a big one. We've we've hooked a large fish here. <laughs> <laughs> Some of them we've been trying to get for quite a while. Yeah. Uh, ever since we started listening to our friend Dave Chen's uh, other podcast, which is yeah. really his podcast called right. the Tobolowski Files. Yeah. So, ladies and gentlemen, Stephen Tobolowski has joined us for Battleship Retention today. Hello, hello, <laughs> hello. hello. Yeah, yeah. David Chen's other
2: podcast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. I always tell David that when doing the Tabulowski files, you know, I have to write, 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 kind of mm-hmm. all week, and I always feel like my life becomes a little bit like the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre <laughs> with David in the role of Leatherface, oh, you know, coming behind me with that saw, and I'm the girl <laughs> screaming no. <laughs> and then I hit the tree limb, and I hear the buzzing coming closer and closer, and I've got to finish that story before David records it.
1: Well, it seems like every week you manage to climb to the back of that pickup truck and head <laughs> off down the highway while Dave stands there wildly spinning his chainsaw around. <laughs> i got to tell you, it's,
0: it is very strange, Stephen, that... Uh, I don't know how many times Dave Chen has been compared to Leatherface on this show, <laughs> but man, you're you're not the first. You're like the fifth. Um, Guests who've never met him say that, but uh, sloppy
2: fifths again.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um. So, uh, all right. Well, I'm. I'm. You know what? I'll I'll admit it. I'm a little nervous. Okay. Yeah. You know. Uh, I I was at Seven Eleven getting waters for all of us, and I walk in, and whoa. I was expecting just my wife to be here, but instead here's Stephen Tobolowsky. I'm a backdoor man. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of inappropriate, um, but uh, that's my wife, sir. Um, and uh, he's perusing my uh, DVD shelves, and uh, sh- like I believe the words "hello" and "hello" were exchanged followed immediately by you know Spider-Man is the worst movie in the world.
2: <laughs> well, well, certainly Spider-Man 2. Oh, okay. You know there was the novelty of Spider-Man 1. That yeah. was that was fine. And uh, and th- and this brings up something you had on one of your last shows oh, okay. and that is about origin shows. Okay. With, with superheroes origin shows. And mm. I have, I have two cents to throw in on okay, that. Okay, well I like I'd like to see them. The, the the thing with superhero shows is a lot of times those shows don't really have an Act 2 or an Act 3, mm. right, in terms of your Aristotelian th- the, <laughs> uh-huh. the structure. Yeah. But you do have an Act 1, and a lot of times Act 1 is the strongest in the origin shows because mm. you learn who superman was and the and what happened to his world and all this stuff there's a lot of action mm-hmm. in origin shows because things are developing and then after the origin show you are stuck trying to create an act two where actually something moves forward and happens mm-hmm. rather than just you know to get to a, a conclusion that's logical mm-hmm. that's why all of these superhero movies everybody sits through the credits you know waits to see what the what the little blip is in the screen at the end of the credits that mm-hmm. says, like, well, it wasn't really Act 3 because now the guy's eyes are open and he's really alive. Right. Or the hand comes out of the ground. Yeah. You know, it's not really Act 3. It's not what you think because we really no. didn't have a story.
0: Yeah, but, it's, uh, and I think actually that's, that's one of the reasons why the, the new Batman movies are doing it well is that um, though I'm actually one of the few that likes Batman Begins more than The Dark Knight um, – they at least. All right, <laughs> now do. we're talking. Um, but the what I like about it is that so many superhero movies, or more specifically superhero franchises, you're right. After the first one, then it's really just a function of like, all right, who's the villain? Like that's really all it is. Right. And don't get me wrong, I love villains, but um, but with Dark Knight, uh, of course, Joker is is the main draw there. But at the same time, they still. They use the film to explore more of what Batman is and like the line, you know, him maybe crossing a line and finding out where that line is for himself. They actually still view him as the main character and that's why it's so interesting to and me.
1: I also get the impression that, that Chris Nolan and, and his brother who's co-writing them mm-hmm. are writing a trilogy. Yeah. Like they know, they. I think they have an idea of where they want Bruce Wayne slash Batman to be at the end of the third one. Mm-hmm. And that's why, I mean, he's pretty much said we're doing a third one and that's that's it. That's, but really? I mean, who knows there, how much money they'll give him. But, yeah.
2: There's one thing, too, about Chris Nolan. Uh, I was in Memento mm-hmm. and a big fan of the Batman movies. And I, I do like Batman Begins mm-hmm. for my taste more than The Dark Knight for other reasons, not mm-hmm. for the filmmaking or the acting. They're, they're all wonderful. And they're both wonderful movies. Mm-hmm. But the thing that Chris Nolan does, and see if you guys agree or disagree, because... One thing he does, it is the only action movie I can think of where the central scene is the talking scene,
3: Mm. is
2: the interview between Batman and Joker. To me, that's the centerpiece of the entire film instead of the great final battle that we're all waiting for. No, the centerpiece is this scene between Mm -hmm. these two forces of what is good, what is evil. And another thing Chris Nolan does is, like in all the Superman movies and things like that, they always try to build to the close-up, the super close-up. Uh-uh. Chris Nolan has his big scenes in wide shots. <clears throat> in two shots. You know, we all remember the scene where Batman jumps across the table and grabs Joker mm-hmm. and does. It's in a wide shot. Yeah. Whereas in all of, I mean, I'm thinking about all these action films. <sighs> But it, it's, it's like Chris Nolan can really draw you in with the huge shot. Mm-hmm. And, and I can't think of a whole lot of people who do that.
1: Yeah. You know, The Dark Knight has been compared many times to Michael Mann's Heat. Mm. And it's like that in, in more than one way. Not in the not only the fact that it has a great bank robbery sequence, yeah. but again, the central scene in Heat is a coffee shop. Coffee yeah. with shop. The two guys talking. Yeah. That's that's the centerpiece of the movie. And
0: what I like about it is that he really... Um, in in Dark Knight, he really uh, focuses on the ideology of Batman and the Joker, and so the the end scene, uh, like maybe like perhaps the climax, is that that discussion between the two of them. But the the final scene, well, I guess the I guess the final scene is with Two Face. But as far as Joker's concerned, the big final scene it mostly has to do with. You know, ideology. Like there aren't a lot of explosions. It's about the two boats and people choosing to do
2: the right thing. Now, see what you just you, what you just did right there. Oh my gosh! Yeah. <laughs> okay. I'm pointing for those of you at home. I'm actually pointing my finger at Tyler. Quite, quite uh, frightening. Yes. What you did there is mm-hmm. the reason why I like Batman Begins better than The Dark Knight. Because mm-hmm. I have the same tendency. to Go well. The big final scene is a oh, wait. Right. Wait a minute. It, it's with Two Face. Yeah, because they screw up Act Three, and I don't want to say screw up because mm-hmm. Chris Nolan doesn't screw anything up, but he's really setting up a new Act One at the end of Act Three, mm-hmm. and it kind of jars your sense of my sense of rhythm. Mm-hmm. So I want to say the end of the movie is somehow some climax with the Joker, but it's not. Yeah, and the climax is some anti climax with. Two Face mm-hmm. and the Kid and the him going off on the motorcycle at night—a very anticlimactic ending, which is cool in its own kind of way.
0: Yeah, it's a very powerful scene, but it's it's kind of a four-act movie. I mean, I think they've said that before, right? I guess so. Um, oh, okay. Sorry, I didn't <laughs> so mean so I to
1: I, uh, I, 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 I want to get to the the interview section soon. I mean, speaking of right. origins, I'm oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Okay, uh, but origins, I also want to well mention. Done, I also want to mention, speaking of uh, a great a great anticlimax. Uh, in, in this in in the case of television is season three of Deadwood and <laughs> oh, yeah. but not only because it ended before its time, but the way that the showdown between uh, swearingen and uh, Hearst is built up mm-hmm. and the way that it deflates is it's something that sopranos did sometimes like if you think of spoilers for the sopranos the end of season one mm-hmm. uh, Tony and his crew decided to take out junior and his crew yeah. and they get some of the guys, but then. Junior ends up getting the indictment and going off to prison. And so the main guy that that Tony was going to get, his Uncle Junior, mm-hmm. gets away. And that's kind of the same thing that happened in Deadwood season three and I think so I think some, what I'm saying I guess sometimes anticlimax climax can be as you said used very well mm-hmm. of course you know with Deadwood it was completely
2: accidental because mm-hmm. everybody was expecting season four yeah. and when we were shooting John from Cincinnati mm-hmm. we were shooting it with the same a lot of the same people on Deadwood with the same crew the same riders, everything and all the sets we were going back and forth to the Deadwood set and just all the Deadwood sets were all stored uh, away the guys were sad. still riding away and it's like uh-huh. Like, uh, oops! Guess it isn't gonna happen. That's sad. <laughs> that is a
0: shame. Deadwood is is it's always be, it's between Deadwood and The Wire for my favorite drama of all time. But Deadwood is just it's it's right up there. And uh, and David, I don't know if you know or not, but uh, I mean he he mentioned it briefly. But uh, our guest today was in Deadwood.
2: Yeah, very exciting. I but, I was in Deadwood. I was I was in Deadwood. Then mm-hmm.
1: well, you have in a way. Again, we'll get to the origin in a second. But I have stuff I want to get out of the way. <laughs> You have, in a way, been in four of my five favorite TV shows of all time. Okay, here we go. Uh, You're on an episode of Seinfeld. Yeah. You're on an episode of The West Wing. Yes. Deadwood. Yes. And then, the reason I say sort of for this fourth one, and I really have been dying to ask your opinion, maybe get some stories about this, you played Principal Flutie in the unaired test pilot of Buffy the Vampire. That is
2: Mm. quite true, yes.
1: How how, how did that happen? What was that like? Well, uh, Joss, I, I was... I was
2: under contract to ABC to do mm-hmm. some sort of sitcom. And, and uh, so you you know how it is. If you're going to be a regular on a sitcom, you sign an exclusivity contract that says that's what you're going to do. And they'll let you do occasionally guest spots on certain things, mm-hmm. which uh, the principal was mm-hmm. on Buffy. So Joss called me. I was in Canada doing actually <sighs> – the Pretender. I was doing the pilot of The Pretender playing mm-hmm. a guest spot. And he said, will you come in and do The Principal if we would like to have you on as The Principal if the show goes? And and I go, well, yeah, but I'm under contract for this other show. And we ended up shooting that show. Mm-hmm. And then the pilot I was in went for a grand total of not one, not two episodes, but eight episodes full <laughs> episodes before we were canceled and I go like oh my gosh that was like a shame but uh buffy was awesome and it had a great career that that mm. was a magnificent show but
1: i mean <laughs> as my understanding is that that test pilot was just that a test pilot it was never supposed to be the version that aired was it is that right i don't know okay i don't know that i mean if you not that buffy was a very well funded show ever in its run but if you and that 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 test pilot while never officially released is completely available on YouTube uh it doesn't look like like the WB had given them <laughs> much of a budget for that yeah
2: yeah and, and but but I have to say shooting it it felt like any big time show you would shoot uh you, you know always in a TV series you you often have the tail wagging the dog in that you have to come up with a format that lives in close-up, hmm, because mm-hmm. television doesn't really survive with huge vistas uh, that often. Uh, Deadwood may be a little bit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The vista we had at Deadwood was a green screen, hmm. and occasionally heroes would use like a vista of a
1: destroyed world, but it's only a, a one little shot. I think. Breaking Bad uses, if you don't know if you watch Breaking Bad, but it uses New Mexico very well in an almost John Ford type of way. But that's yes. an exception to the rule.
2: Yes, that's true. That's true. Uh, but most shows have to live in close-ups, which is why you're going to have school shows where the students are in chairs and teachers are mm. teaching them where you can walk and talk down a hallway That's why you have crime dramas mm-hmm. in a courtroom because uh-huh. you just have people sitting there and you could focus on the defendant's face and the, the lawyer's mm-hmm. face so you always have the tail wagging the dog in these shows i feel mm-hmm. i mean that that's just my opinion uh it is unique that you have a show like deadwood that is a show that is so expansive and and action-based mm-hmm. as a show that has such success as television. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we shot that in a film format with with the idea that that, that Deadwood would be shown as little films in Europe. Oh, yeah. Oh. Hmm. Was my understanding. Wow. Interesting.
0: Um, now, as David has said, and I think will be a, a theme for the show, we'll get to the origin in a minute, <laughs> uh, in, a, in a, almost a, a Tristram Shandy kind of way. Um, because i do there are several as I was thinking about this, there are several characters that you 've played that i 've wanted to ask you about um, because i 'm fascinated by uh, i 'm fascinated by the acting process, but specifically somebody uh, of your level because you know you're you 're seldom the lead uh, and in some cases you know you you 're only maybe in a scene or two maybe three um, and uh, and so i 'll get to those uh, in a moment, but uh, I did want to talk about. Uh, commissioner J- Jari mm-hmm. in uh, Deadwood. Uh, I was talking with a friend of mine and told him that, that you were going to be on, and he uh, he was borrowing my uh, my complete series of Deadwood. And I was like, I goes, hey, do you, you remember who he is? He goes, oh, absolutely, he's the commissioner. And my friend made an interesting observation. He's like, he goes, I don't know how that character lives, but like, <laughs> it's just he just keeps he just keeps not getting killed. Yeah, and that is astounding to me. Um, that yeah. he's the face of bureaucracy, which Deadwood seems to have no taste for, but he comes at just the right time that they 're like, "I guess we have to not kill
2: him because um, he <laughs> serves a purpose and 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 I always felt that w- at every juncture where I could be killed, it was in their interest either swearingen 's interest to connect with the United States or mm-hmm. hearst 's interest yeah or or uh, Tolliver's interest, the character Powers Booth played. Uh Mm -hmm. Uh, I think the best way to get killed on Deadwood is to complain about your salary to David Milch. (laughs) I think that was the surefire way to do it. As soon as somebody felt like they were indispensable on that show, and they go to David, you know, I think I ought to be bumped up a little bit. (laughs) They were bumped off a little bit.
0: (laughs) I I heard about that with the show Oz, that any time an actor... Um, was either like being just troublesome in some way whether uh, directly or indirectly like perhaps being late to set uh, a, a certain number of times or something. Uh, the writers would either have the person be raped or killed. <laughs> and it's just like oh geez. Because uh, then you have to you're not literally being raped but uh, you still have that awkwardness of having to film that scene.
2: I, I think the... Uh, The choicest example, if we go to the haiku, Mm -hmm. the haiku example of Deadwood is Powers Booth playing Tolliver. Mm -hmm. At the end of season two, Mm -hmm. I believe season two was statehood, right? Uh, That Deadwood was—that South Dakota was going to be a state. Mm -hmm. And uh, Swearingen and uh, Bullock, Mm -hmm. uh, Sheriff Bullock and myself, signed the statehood papers up Mm -hmm. top while the wedding is going on outside. Right, Right, yeah. And then— powers booth was going into negotiations into the third year Mm -hmm. with david milch over you know should i get a little more moolah and sure enough the minister at the wedding had a knife Mm -hmm. and stabbed powers in Uh the stomach as the (laughs) cliffhanger and then david milch used that as a bargaining chip uh, for powers (laughs) (laughs) what do you what do you think powers (laughs) um (laughs) Oh man. That's all very
0: cynical. <laughs> um like but uh now as far as uh, Commissioner Jari like uh in your first appearance you're you're more of kind of a just a standard, you know, kind of a bureaucrat. And then uh in subsequent appearances, your character gets a little w- for lack of a better term, weirder. Um <laughs> like he does like uh now it's been a while since I've seen it. If I'm not mistaken, there's a scene of you in a bubble bath. Is that yes. true?
2: Now that's that's a really Sweet, sweet story. Okay. Um, (laughs) I don't And, in fact, I think I mentioned it on one of the Tobolowsky Files podcast, episode 12. Oh, my. Uh, Yes, the sound of surprise. I do a few Deadwood stories on the Tobolowsky Files. The the girl who's in the bathtub Mm -hmm. with me was Powers Booth's daughter. Oh, good. Paris. And uh, Powers used all of his powers— yeah. That, it was a play on <laughs> well, words, and I, I didn't even intend it to be kind of a play on words, but he used his power of being a a leading guy on here to get mm-hmm. his daughter the role of a prostitute in his saloon, which is what any good father would oh, do yeah, for yeah, his absolutely. art. Yeah. Now, the trick of this whole thing was Powers and I went to college together. Okay. We went to SMU together. He was a graduate student. I was undergraduate But I knew Powers and Pam, and they had their little baby, Paris. And there were times, you know, we'd go over to Powers' house, and he and Pam were just so charming, and we'd be drinking beers. And Paris would be crawling on the floor, and they would ask—Powers would pass out, you know, kind of over by the bookcase Mm -hmm. or whatever— and uh, I'd be talking to Pam about stained glass or riding horses, and, and she'd say, uh, Tobo, you want, want another beer or want a, some guacamole? I said, sure. She says, could you, could you diaper Paris for me? <laughs> oh, now, geez. I was just like a junior or a senior in college, but I felt like a man should know how to diaper a baby. Mm. So I diapered Paris so flash forward in the time machine here i am on deadwood and the girl i'm supposed to get a blow job from is paris a girl i had diapered what 20 some odd years before and it was such a freak and she she was totally freaked out by this and i told her paris listen you know just pretend i'm like when he. Your dad's friends and we're drunk in the hot tub, and <laughs> and she just got more weirded out by it. So,
0: so um, was that your hang on? Was your intention to calm her down by saying that, or freak her out more? No, no, that's no, yeah. I okay. Guess, okay, all right. Just I, guess, no, sure.
2: I was I was trying to calm her down, but you know when you do, because we talked about this before the show started. Mm-hmm. Actually, you know, because I'm doing californication now. Right. And I had yet another Hummer uh, <laughs> on a show. That makes two, a total of two in my illustrious career. Wait, and- that
1: never happened on Heroes? <laughs>
2: <laughs> nope. <laughs> no, I I just had exposition was the only Humming I was doing on that show. And it was, yeah, okay. That's a whole other uh, story. But, you know... Uh, when you're doing sex scenes, mm-hmm. you're not really doing sex scenes, mm. you, you know, because nobody's really having sex. Right. Uh, in fact, you're not even unclothed. You know, I'm wearing a bathing suit. She's wearing something. You're in a bubble bath. You're, mm-hmm. So the hardest thing is pretending because you don't feel anything happening when. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, you know there, there are a couple things you could do. The first thing you do as an actor is you kind of pretend you're Richard Gere. Or you say, "What would Richard Gere do now?" Because he does these kind of scenes a lot. <laughs> mm-hmm. So you end up doing like, ooh, ooh, ooh. you end up doing things like this. Man, I wish there was a video podcast. <laughs> that was uh, priceless. Get back, Tyler. Get okay, back. I'm sorry. <laughs> no. but, uh, and, and then the other thing you do is, well, you realize that's no good. You, you realize that you're just doing stereotypical, you know, bad. Uh, porno softcore porno acting like mm. oh oh the thing i found worked and this is you know this is could be a tip uh-huh. for young actors out there the thing that i found that worked is pretending that someone else was going to clip your toenails <laughs> so if you're at home right now just imagine someone is pulling off your sock and you feel that cold air ooh Ooh, yeah. And then they get the metal clippers. Uh-oh, uh-oh. Watch it, watch it, watch it. <laughs> then comes, then she starts on the big toe, and it's clip. Oh, okay, okay, a little too, oh, 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 okay, okay. Too close to the quick, okay, okay. And then they go to the next up. Good, okay, yeah, okay. And you see where this is going. <laughs> yeah. You can do an entire sex scene just by pretending someone's clipping your toenails. <laughs>
1: Well, all right, actors, <laughs> uh, something to keep that, in mind.
2: That's just for the young actors out there who who may have to do this at some point in time.
1: Okay, now you mentioned college. You mentioned SMU. This is to be the best way to get us. Uh, I wanted to, to
0: find out about get, the
2: bird.
1: Get us. Not <laughs> <well, I'm> sure, <laughs> but to get us to to Texas. To you, you're you 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 are from Texas. Yes. Uh, what's that like? <laughs> <laughs> well done, David. Thanks,
2: <laughs> Texas. You know, Willie Nelson said it best. Uh, He said, people that grow up in Texas often feel like they have no limits. And he said it in a concert, and I believed him. And (laughs) (laughs) I think it's kind of true. I always grew up thinking that I wanted to be an actor, and the reason being, and this is true. It's embarrassing, but it's true, because I always was a movie kid, you know, I always Mm -hmm. sat around and watched movies all the time. Mm -hmm. I loved monster movies when I was a kid, and I thought that by being an actor, I would actually be able to hang out with monsters.
3: (laughs) I thought they were real.
2: Like, I'd be able to hang out with Godzilla, hang out with the Wolfman, and meet Godzilla. Godzilla was, like, my favorite, and I always thought when I grew up, I wanted to be Godzilla. That was what I thought about in Texas, and my parents never dissuaded me, which was good. Yeah, but good. when you grow up in Texas, you grow up. I grew up in kind of a quasi-rural setting. So there were critters everywhere. Everywhere you were, there were, I think there are four deadly snakes in Texas. And they were all uh-huh. in our neighborhood. <laughs> you know, they're, they're everywhere. And tarantulas and spiders. And yeah. it was very creepy. We We grew up. We grew up in a very religious area, and, and I didn't know that at the time. Mm-hmm. We grew up in an area with a lot of people that believed, like, either that were Baptist who didn't drink or Church mm-hmm. of Christ who didn't dance. Or uh, there were a lot of prohibitions mm-hmm. where we were, and we grew up in an area where there was no alcohol. So I never touched alcohol in my life till I was 19. Mm. And then I touched a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it touched me. And... We also had Nazis. In in, in fact, you, you guys, you both are young whippersnappers, but you may not know it, but at that time, Dallas was the headquarters of the American Nazi Party, huh. where I grew up. And when I was a kid, I was on a basketball team in fifth grade, the Carpenter Crusaders. Mm. I played, I was forward on the basketball team, and I averaged about four points a season. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, our guard was John Rutledge, and one day, John became a Nazi. Oh, jeez. And, uh, you know, he invited the team over to his house, and his parents had a bust of Adolf Hitler in their living room with, like, cross-German flags and stuff in there, and it was scary. And this was kind of... I realized... People did in Texas feel like there were no limits, uh-huh. not only in terms of good, but in terms of evil mm-hmm. and, and in terms of scariness. Yeah. Um, and then I, I grew up, I think you guys probably know the true, but somewhat weird apocryphal story that I, I did. I cut a song with Stevie Ray Vaughan uh-huh. when I was a kid. Uh, Stevie Ray lived around the corner from us and we had a little group and we played and. Uh, Bobby Foreman, who went on to be in the New Christy Minstrels, uh, said, "We have this kid Stevie Vaughn uh, who who's going to play guitar with us on uh, this record we were doing. We we got a record with Garage Bands of Dallas, where every five bands we were picked as one of the five bands got to do two songs. Stevie Ray plays on that album. Hmm. He was fourteen and was awesome." We uh, were terrible. Yeah. I we mean you ter-
1: you included one of the songs on an episode of, yes. of The Topolski Files.
2: I did. I did. I believe yeah, I think it was episode 9, the Christmas episode is a gift, so people could hear young Stevie Ray.
1: I guess it shouldn't surprise me that you know the Topolski Files even better than I do, but I uh, <laughs> I should say I'm a huge fan. I've listened. I've actually been re-listening, re-listening a lot lately because my girlfriend had not listened and we were on a road trip and uh it was up my iPod, and I was like, you want to listen to an episode? And it was a fairly recent one, The Three Honeymoons was yes. the episode. And she fell in love, so now we have been like, whenever we go in the car, <laughs> even if we're only going to be in the car for 25 minutes, she'll be like, do you have any more Tolesky files? <laughs> so we've started from the beginning, we've been, been listening to all of them Oh, in the terrific, car. terrific. Um, but, okay, so you mentioned always wanting to be an actor. Is that, you literally, do you remember ever not wanting to be an actor? Was no. there... I always wanted to be an actor because I thought it meant I could meet monsters and I could mm-hmm.
2: fight in wars. Uh-huh. Because if you remember, those were the other big movies at the time was you got to fight in wars. And somehow that seemed like it was a good thing to do at the time. And the big <laughs> conversations we would have with kids around the block is, was which branch of the service did you want to be in where you would have the most action. Uh-huh. And we all wanted to be in the infantry, the uh-huh. army infantry, or be Marines. We wanted to really get into it. And, I mean, that you know, that was kind of the climate we we, we kind of grew up in. Um,
1: what was your question? <laughs> just, I, just if you if you ever remember not wanting to be an actor?
2: No, no, I always wanted to be an actor, and I acted in plays. I acted in plays at the parks during the summer. They used to have these plays. Mm-hmm. And I remember uh, the first play I was ever in, I was five. And I was in Hansel and Gretel, and I played the role of Hansel with Marsha Hauswright, who played Gretel. And she had a ponytail that was pulled way, way back tight on her head to where it would pull like her eyes and everything up. And she was very hot. And the di- the director, who was the lady at the park, said, when you kids go to sleep, feed Gretel a strawberry and kiss her on the cheek. Uh, I fed her a strawberry in front of the people and kissed her on the cheek. And I remember the audience going, oh. And inside my stomach, I was thinking like, I don't know what that is, but man, I want more of that. (laughs) That was hot. I had never really kissed like I mean, that was so hot. And then we fell asleep and I found out afterwards that I won second place for Pee Wee Actor. Huh. So so I but it was Who won first? I have no I have no idea who that (laughs) son of a bitch was, but I wanna track him down. But my bedtime was eight o'clock. So I couldn't stay up for the award ceremony. I mm. just had to do Hansel and Gretel. Came home and my aunt, Aunt <laughs> Esther, dear Aunt Esther from Pennsylvania, she stayed and saw the awards assembly and felt very good about that. But I was doing a Ghost of Hooten Holler, mm. uh, which we changed the title to the Ghost of Pumpkin Holler because the woman who directed us was a Baptist and felt that. Hooten Holler was too edgy <laughs> so, now were you were
0: you raised in the town from footloose it sounds like you
3: were <laughs> yeah it seems
2: that way no no uh but at the good show, now this was i you know i never really thought of this till talking to you guys now but this was a turning point in my life cuz i was very successful Mm-hmm. in the role of the ghost of Pumpkin Holler. I was very successful. I won Best Actor of the Little Parks region. Right. But for our good show party, we ate watermelon in the back of Miss Bab's backyard right after the yard was sprayed for chinch bugs. And I got poisoned that night. And oh, I geez. mean poisoned. And so I went to bed that... This is this is graphic. Listen... Um, <laughs> This is a note for all of you at home who who are sensitive to bodily functions. This <laughs> next part of the story is going to be really horrible. Maybe I'll leave the room. <laughs> now that I think about it. <laughs> so I was going to bed that night, and I suddenly felt like I had a tummy trouble, mm-hmm. and I ran to the bathroom in the middle of the night, and I got up from the toilet, and the toilet was red. Oh. I had internal bleeding and i was i was like 11 12 years of age and i was terrified and i ran down the hall my dad was a doctor i called mom and i was sick for the next well till i was 15 i was sick for about the next four years i lost a lot of weight Mm -hmm. and i couldn't play in any sports I couldn't go outside. And my parents were terrified because they thought I had some kind of cancer and I was going to die. And it was during this period of time where I couldn't do sports like Mm -hmm. other Texas guys, and I was stuck inside all the time, that I started to read plays. Mm -hmm. Because it was the only thing I could do. And when I was 15, I decided to get in the drama department of my high school and I did. Now this is interesting. This is somewhat interesting. Okay. So I did my first play, which was Moliere's The Miser, mm-hmm. and I played a seventy-year-old man, Arpagon. And I was directed by Mary Curtis, but Mary Curtis didn't really direct me. She pulled in a a mysterious secret director off the streets of Dallas, who was this hotshot actor in Dallas at the time, a guy named David Nichols, mm-hmm. and David Nichols turned out to be the art director of Groundhog's Day <laughs> and Great Balls of Fire. <laughs> so during my career, I met David Nichols several other times, but he is the guy who really directed me in my first play.
0: Wow. Well I'll tell you this, the uh I was really I was revved up for this really gross thing. You got me all all worked up for it. And like I was expecting like a Farrelly Brothers kind of story. <laughs> what I wound up with was very uh, vaguely Cronenbergian, like it's yeah. just yeah, <laughs> toilet full of blood.
2: <laughs> Isn't that hilarious? Oh wait, no, it's horrifying. It's horrifying. But no, um, yeah, Cronenberg is right. Yeah.
1: Well, we, we're already thirty-three minutes in, and we haven't even gotten to the the topic for this week. Oh dear. Mm-hmm. Okay, go for it. Um, and this is gonna it's gonna continue essentially being an interview. Mm. Uh, but we want to talk about uh, th- just sort of the the life of a of a working character actor a person who is a person who is working mm-hmm. is no is no longer someone who is a starving artist but is not Brad Pitt or whatever yeah. either um, and I'm I just want I I wanted to bring this up, because I was like I said I've been re listening to the Tobolsky files and I just the other day got to uh a a just a beautiful little passage that you talked about um, yeah an interpretation from the story of Joseph where he tells his brothers don't fight on the road. Mm-hmm. And you go through a number of different interpretations that have been said of what that, you know, what that uh, sentence means. And one of them from, I think you said like the to 1600s, uh, someone saying that it means not don't fight on the road, but don't argue with the path. Yes. So that's my way of getting us into the topic. Tell us about your path. Well done, David. Uh,
2: Um, it's, that's a great question because, uh, what in that same series of stories on the podcast, when, when I was a kid acting, you know, you do think that what you're going to be is the next Brad Pitt, even though I was not thinking of the next Brad Pitt, I was thinking of the next Laurence Olivier Mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. Brad Pitt wasn't born yet. (laughs) You know, you're thinking of, we wanted to be stars on Broadway. We wanted to be great. And and the handsome leading man, mm-hmm. that's what you that's what you saw yourself as. You never saw yourself as, uh, you know, <laughs> you never saw yourself as Ward Bond, yeah. or Frank Phelan. You saw yourself as Jimmy Stewart. Mm-hmm. That's what you saw yourself as. And when I was in Illinois, uh, the University of Illinois, which I think was like 1975, I I before then I was always playing leads, mm. you know at uh not at s m u because I had trouble with the teacher there and didn 't get cast but but when I acted in the other theaters around town, I was the young leading man I was all that kind of stuff and then the the one year I was in Illinois, I went into the shower. This is not gross. Okay. (laughs) There isn't going to be blood at the bottom, but there is going to be hair. All right. It's like at the end of this one week performance where I use gray streaks and tips to play yet another 70 year old man Mm -hmm. is uh, my hair started to fall out Mm. and I was so depressed because I never imagined that I would lose my hair and be bald because I had tons of hair Mm -hmm. and I started losing my hair when I was 25, 26, and people, friends started noticing, oh, Tobo, you're going to be a chrome dome. I can see it now. <laughs> and it killed me. Uh, when I first came out to LA, one of the first auditions I got was to be an extra in Greece, the movie Greece. Mm-hmm. And Joel Thurm, who was the casting director, just looked at me and said, No, nah, no, nah, this guy's losing his hair. Oh, you wow. know, he can't be a greaser. Get him. no no, no, no. And I didn't know where I was gonna go with mm-hmm. it. And it was pretty depressing. And there was a huge period of time where I felt like I it wasn't going to happen for me and I had no no plan B. Mm-hmm, not mm-hmm. not to go to the podcast yeah. again, but I really had, I didn't know what else I was going to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I went back to theater, which was always a good thing to go back to, which is why I recommend to all young actors, get a theater background. It gives you discipline. It gives you the chance of of developing your craft, either in comedy or drama. You get to see what it's like playing with enormous distractions of an audience before you get to this, the distractions of playing in front of a camera and a crew. But I went back to theater and played leads in -hmm. theater. Um, And then I guess with sitcoms, I was able to play what you would call character parts. Mm -hmm, These mm -hmm. little two scene parts of like a radio DJ or something here where I could just be a wild and crazy guy. Mm -hmm. And, One of the good things when you lose your hair is you stay looking the same for a long period of time. Mm -hmm. People recognize you as, oh, you're the bald guy. (laughs) You know, you're the bald guy with glasses. Oh, I know what you look like. So in a way, what was bad on the front end turned out to help me out in the middle. I, I think that combined with Alan Parker... Uh, I got cast in Mississippi Burning, and nobody knew what that movie was really about, but they knew that Alan Parker was one of the greatest directors in the world, and if he's going to cast me, then this guy, Tobolowski guy, must be pretty good. Mm -hmm. So within the next two or three weeks, I had five different offers of movies Hmm. of people just saying, well, we want the guy who's in the new Alan Parker movie. And one of them was like "Bird on a Wire." Uh, one of them was "Great Balls of Fire." One of them was uh, "Breaking Out" with Burt Reynolds. Uh, they they were all different. Mm-hmm. So, in a business that tries to to put you into a little cubbyhole and lock you there they could not lock me there because suddenly I had Mississippi Burning which was a drama, Mm -hmm. Great Balls of Fire which was a comedy, Bird on a Wire which was an action film and and I was all over the place Mm -hmm. so I was very lucky and then of course enormously lucky to do Groundhog's Day Mm -hmm. which Mm -hmm. was kind of a big definitive role. And after then I got a lot of comic parts and then lucky again to get another kind of character part in Memento, mm-hmm. which is, a, then I was able to do dramas
0: again. And what's interesting about Memento is the nature of the character, everyone remembers him. Because the whole time it's just remember Sammy Jenkins. So like, <laughs> I, would say, I would say to people like, hey, we got Stephen Tobolowski and I'm sorry, my friends would be like, I'm sorry, who, who is that? And I'd be like, remember Sammy Jenkins, And they're like, yes, I do. And it's, it's that guy. It really um, also
1: helps that even though you only have one actual spoken line in the movie, you get to say it two or three times. Yeah. And it's a very memorable line. Yeah. Which is, te- well, what is it? I'm not going to say it. No, you I, right I, here. I, I, I don't, I don't, what, because what I, I, I had a few lines when I go,
2: fuck you. Yeah, you t- know what, I think he says, test this, you fucking quack. Yeah, t- yeah, test this, you fucking quack, something like that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but I remember when when I met, uh, Chris, first of all, you know, reading the script Memento, Mm -hmm. it was, I I cannot think of a script that was better ever in my life that Mm -hmm. I read, that affected me more. And I read it on the page and I went like, this could be the most brilliant movie ever. Mm -hmm. I remember screaming to my wife, this is great. And I called up my agent and said, I've got to go in and read for Sammy Jenkins. Mm -hmm. And he goes, well, there's nothing there. And I said, I don't care. Just get me into the office to meet Chris. And I I met Chris Nolan, and he was laughing. And he's one of these guys that you like immediately. So smart. His eyes were just kind of blazing. Great sense of humor. Charming. And he says, why on earth do you want to play Sammy (laughs) Jenkins? There's no lines. It's tiny. I'm so sorry. There's nothing here. And I said... It is the central part of the movie, mm. not the biggest part of the movie, but but it's like you were saying, Dave. Every, everybody refers to Sammy Jenkins all through the film, uh-huh. and not only that, but when sent who is this, is it too late for a spoiler? <laughs> oh, no, 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 it's I think it's people, people, our are, listenership has definitely seen him. Yeah. you know when I kill my wife, mm. it is one of the. It's yeah. a horrific yeah. scene. And I said, you know, you don't need dialogue in a film because a film is visually-based medium, and if you have a gripping visual scene, Mm -hmm. it will be remembered.
0: And it's interesting because, um, and this will kind of lead me into some of the other uh, questions that I have, in that scene, um, which uh, was very memorable when I first saw it, and then, honestly, upon getting married, uh, had a great deal more resonance, because to all of a sudden... Like I was able to put myself in that character's shoes uh, Not to imply that, you know, someone who, like, isn't married Wouldn't be able to But at the same time, just To all of a sudden just, you know The memory kicks in again And you find that your wife is there You know, lying dead And it seems to be by your hand Just, I can't imagine anything worse And just you have a great deal of panic And and I feel like, um You know, I, I'm not, of course, familiar with every single thing you've done Because you've done a lot of stuff But, um I have found in looking back at some of the things that you've done, you, you know, you as an actor have not been really required to to display that kind of emotion very often. Um, and it really, and as somebody who, you know, you you were leads in plays and all that, I mean, is there a certain degree of, of you know, I, I apologize for going negative all of a sudden, but, like, is there a certain degree of frustration with that, that, like, you, you know, other actors get to play, like, you know, I, how often do you get to cry on screen, for example? Or are you just usually...
2: <laughs> Every week on California Oh, okay. <laughs> No, no, no I, hear, I, I hear you. You know, what, what... Tell me if I'm interpreting your question wrong, mm-hmm. but you're not just talking about crying. You're talking about the dimensionality of a character. Right, yeah. You know, in film, you have a lead character, Harrison Ford. We watch Harrison Ford take a shower. Mm-hmm. We watch him drink coffee. Mm-hmm. We watch him drive to work. Let's say I'm playing his friend. If I'm lucky enough to get cast, <laughs> if I'm if I'm lucky enough, I have to do all of that in my head. Right. Mm-hmm. Because I'm his buddy and I'm going to betray him later in the film. Mm-hmm. But I have to create a lot of that backstory on my own. And this goes to what you were saying, Dave, before, is that. One of the challenges of being a character actor as opposed to being a leading actor isn't the size of the part, but the amount of discipline you have to have to create the backstory on your own. Mm-hmm. Because they don't do it for you and the writers don't do it for you. They often don't even think about it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I I had an audition this week uh, with Cameron Crowe. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, fabulous funny guy uh, again it was the audition was great mm-hmm. i hope i get the part but the audition was great but you know there was a line in the script saying uh that i wore a fashionable tie mm-hmm. you know and i said to cameron crow i said you know people write this stuff in scripts and it means nothing Mm -hmm. You know, as an actor, it means nothing. And Cameron says, well, tell me, because I wrote it. I (laughs) I wrote that line. What do you mean? It means nothing. And I said, well, what does a fashionable tie mean? Mm -hmm. You know, as an actor or as a character actor, I'm thinking like, where does the script take place? Fashionable means something if I'm in New York City. But it means something completely different if this script takes place in Arkansas. Mm-hmm. It means something completely different if I'm in Alaska. I have no idea where the movie takes place. They never told me. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it matters completely when you know what the economic situation of the person is. Mm-hmm. You know, w- what are their aspirations? And as a character actor, you have to do all that kind of mental gymnastics yourself to fill in all those pieces. And and uh, Cameron was, was going like, oh, well, <laughs> gosh— uh, I never even thought of that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I was—I I said, you know, it means it's a big difference if we're if I'm wearing Prada or Gucci tie, or if I'm wearing a Jerry Garcia, you yeah. know, tie with a or a you know a, something with kind of a Beatles on it. You know, yeah,
0: I buy my ties at Target, <laughs> uh, and so uh, fashionable means something different for yes. me. Um, and uh, and actually, it was uh, I was uh, I was watching in preparation for this, I was watching a few a few movies that uh, I own that you were in. Um, and I watched uh, Mississippi Burning, and uh, wonderful work. Uh, and we'll get to that in a moment. But, uh, <laughs> but I was uh, I was watching The Insider. Yeah, great film. Wonderful film. My favorite movie of that year. Um, now, I believe you have two scenes in it, maybe three. Uh, not a great deal of dialogue, as Eric Cluster, is right. the name of the character. Um, and I found myself wondering because there's in the context of of the story there's. The, the character is more significant in what he represents as opposed to who he is um, and I found myself wondering i mean and I feel like as a a lot of character actors wind up playing roles like that where this person is the personification of network bureaucracy that 's what he is basically he's kind of a stooge for lack of a better term um, and i I found myself wondering like how difficult must it be to have this to try and craft a full character with Who with not not only minimal uh, minimal material, but also knowing full well that the audience is meant to not like this guy. He is not just a place filler. He is representative of something, you know.
2: Well, you you know, you you tread on some really thin ice, some really Mm -hmm. dangerous issues. And it's dangerous issues for actors all the time. And it goes back to your question to Dave and and. As an actor, you cannot be concerned about how an audience is going to view you. Mm-hmm. You you can't do that because nobody thinks of themselves as the face of bureaucracy and they're right. going to hate me. Everybody thinks of themselves as a hero in their own movie. Mm-hmm. Everybody thinks I am here and I am doing the best damn thing I could do right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a brief, Do we should I mention this thing, the Michael Mann thing? Sure. I, I mean, you know... So I did not read for Eric Cluster. Okay. I did not read for Eric Cluster. They sent me one page that said clerk. Hmm. Clerk is what it said. Clerk at the top. And there was one page of dialogue. And it was like the Cameron Crowe thing. The the director, writer, Michael Mann and uh, Mr. Roth, uh, Philip Roth, they wanted to keep the material hidden. Mm-hmm. You know, they didn't want anyone to see what they were doing. So the actors couldn't get the script. Hmm. So I had no idea what clerk was. So I called my agent up and said, I'm not going in on this. Yeah. And they said, you have to. I said, I can't go in. I don't know what I'm clerk of. I don't know if I'm a law <laughs> clerk or a hotel clerk. No. I, I don't know what clerk means. Mm-hmm. I don't know any of this. This is absolute bullshit. And they said, well, just go in and meet him. So I went over and i sat in that waiting room for 2 hours and saying thinking like am i going to go in and just chicken shit out of this and just go in and go yes mr M- yes what what are you going to yeah. do and i went in on the audition and i and he said shall we do this and michael was there with his little camera i said michael let's not <laughs> let's <laughs> not do it and he started laughing just like that <laughs> and he says what do you mean and i said michael What if I were to come to you and say, you know, Michael, I like you as a director, and I want you to direct an action movie that takes place in 1930. Will you do it? And you would probably say, what's it about? Oh, I can't tell you. Mm -hmm. Well, who's my stars? Can't tell you. (laughs) What's the budget? You don't need to know that. All you need to do is say, well, does it have something to do with pre-war America, Europe? What? I can't tell you that. I said, Michael, you have tied chains around my legs with cement and have thrown me over the side of the boat with this. I don't know what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. I don't know anything. You need to let me read a script. And if I read a script then I will know who I am. Mm -hmm. You cannot ask an actor to audition without them knowing who they are or what they're doing. So Michael said, he kind of got that kind of grin on his face of like, okay, the game is on. (laughs) So he took me over to his desk and pulled out a script and gave me a contract, a four-page contract that said if I showed anybody this script, I would lose everything I had in my life and he cut off my toes with, uh, with, with, uh, with the nail clippers <laughs> and I could pretend I was having sex again. So anyway, it said that I would read the script and bring the script back the very next day and not discuss it with anybody. I signed this contract. I came back the next day and read not for Eric Cluster, but for another role. Mm-hmm. And uh, Michael said, thank you very much. And I left, and then later I found out that Michael said, you're going to be in the movie, but I don't know what you're going to play. <laughs> and then he gave me the role of Eric Cluster, and then I read it. And what you have to do is you have to go back and think, how much is Eric Cluster's job on the line Right. in terms of dealing with Al Pacino and dealing with this case? What are the pressures he's feeling? No. Is, do I feel it's a big story or not a big story? and. and it, just speaking to a second to your, to your question before tyler mm-hmm. is about crying yeah about crying and playing dim, parts with dimensionality yeah this is a public service notice to all the young actors out there it is my theory that acting has nothing to do with emotions mm-hmm. nothing it has to do with clarity of thought if your thought is clear your emotion will follow uh, actors who approach it by, like, trying to be emotional always will come off bad. Mm-hmm. So in a way, every part, no matter how big or how small, has the same challenge. You have to bring clarity of thought to it, and and everyth- the real
1: 24-hour life of that character will, will, will emerge if you're clear. Mm-hmm. Well, this brings me to, the, if you allow me, uh, and I know you have to be out of here at a certain time, but we luckily we started promptly, so we've said <laughs> We've got a little bit of time left. Um, uh, if you let me a long lead up to this question, um, we've been using the term character actor, but they're also often referred to as supporting actors. And I guess say, at the at the risk of being uh, overly, uh, I don't know, uh, <laughs> overly <laughs> overly praising uh, this work you're talking about that goes into a role, really shows when you're on screen. I, mm-hmm. I think uh, certainly Ned Ryerson being such a memorable character has something to do with the script and with Harold Ramis' direction, but a lot of that work you've done is on screen. And not only is Ned Ryerson a memorable, memorable character on his own, he's also uh, a huge part of Bill Murray's story and uh, Bill mm. Murray's arc. And so my, my question is, to what extent when you're doing all this work are you, uh, and when the character is a quote-unquote supporting character, to what extent are you trying to figure out how you can help the movie and to what extent are you just trying to be... Memorable yourself. That is, that is a great, great
2: question. And just like you cannot try to judge how you want the audience to view you, you cannot judge uh, how, what emotion you're going to play a scene with. You want to mm-hmm. be surprised by that. You, you cannot try to be memorable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and But you do try to see what your role is. Uh, What's One of the greatest compliments somebody ever gave me was Peter Scolari, and and, uh, Peter said, Tobo, you're like John Havlicek. You know, you don't usually start the basketball. He used to play basketball (laughs) for the Celtics. (laughs) (laughs) He was the sixth man. He was like Michael Cooper was for the Lakers. He sat on the bench at the beginning of the game, but came on at the end of the first quarter. And if you needed Havlicek to shoot, he would shoot. If you needed him to pass, he would pass. If you needed him to play defense, he would play defense. Mm-hmm. And as as a character actor, you have to become very sensitive as to what your function is in the movie. Am I here to set up Bill, or is Bill there to set me up? Mm-hmm. What is the function of that scene, of, of the Groundhog's Day scene? Obviously, it is bill's nightmare Mm -hmm. the the function of the ned ryerson scene is to say like oh my god this is the haiku (laughs) of a nightmare that you're going to meet this guy over and over again so in a way i could see that that gives me permission to do whatever i want to do to just be that as much as i want to be for bill Mm -hmm. and it allowed i i mean bill was just incredibly awesome in that movie one of the greatest comic performances ever was Bill Murray in Groundhog's mm-hmm. Day. Mm-hmm.
1: Awesome. Um, I, uh, well, I I want to ask you oh, real okay. quick. Right. just a tiny little question. <laughs> okay. Your character on Glee, yes, uh, Sandy Sandy Ryerson. Yes. Yeah. Was his name Ryerson before you got the part, or did they? It do that was as a Ryerson
2: homage? when I walked into the room. Wow. And mm. and I don't know what that was about either. I don't because it's spelled exactly the same way Ned Ryerson was, uh-huh. mm. and uh. I don't know if they did it as an homage to Ned. I, I don't know what what, but on the set of Glee, they use they use Sandy uh, Ryan Murphy, the creator, you know, writer and director mm-hmm. producer of Glee. He was using Sandy the same way that they used Ned in Groundhog's Day, which is like just as a neutron bomb. <laughs> you know, he says. <laughs> You know, just go in there and be obnoxious, you know, just do something, <laughs> yeah. you know, go in there, do it, you know, do whatever you want to do. Just do it. Do 20 takes of it. Just do it. And so they use me the same way that they use Ned and Groundhog day.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, this is another just stupid glee question. Uh, cause I don't know where your music fandom runs. How well did you know the song loser by Beck before you had to do it? Because I imagine Sandy is not a guy who knows that song. <laughs> <laughs> I love Beck. Okay. And I loved loser. Uh,
2: I, the only thing I was shocked at, you know, because we did an entire Busby Berkeley musical number. Oh. Do they do that on the DVD? Do you get to see the whole number? Because it I don't was know. hilarious. Hmm. And then on this, on the show, you know, they showed fifteen seconds of it. Uh-huh. But uh, oh, I loved I love Beck. Yeah, okay, big Beck. Because I was just
1: wondering what someone who isn't familiar with those lyrics and then has to sing them. <laughs> well, would...
2: you you have to just take those <laughs> liberties when you're in Glee.
1: Um. Uh, speaking of Glee, today the Emmy nominations were announced and Glee ran away with the nominations. Yeah. So, uh, it's an awesome show. To them.
2: I mean, in so many ways, it's, it's an incredible show besides just the concept of it, the popularity of it, the technical difficulty of doing a show like this, uh, the, the music staff, the choreographers, the singing talent on the show. It, you know, Jane. You know, it's it's just a remarkable show. So so I understand that. I, I mean, I to me, it's it is not only you could say, well, yeah, Glee is a phenomenon and it's extremely popular. But you could take another look too to the quality element of Glee and the nuts and bolts that goes into making a television show. And it really is remarkable. Mm-hmm. It is remarkable what what they do on that show.
0: Um, I had a question, and this is uh, I we're actually starting to run short of time a little bit, but not,
1: like I said, we started early. That's you got to right. be up we by nine thirty. It's, it's five to forgot. nine. Um, oh,
0: we're cool. We're cool. I guess I just naturally assume that this is always taking longer than uh, than I thought. <laughs> um, but uh, and we're talking actually a lot more about TV than we are film. But I was question, uh, I was curious about your uh, your appearance on Seinfeld because I've uh, I've listened to several podcasts and I've listened to a lot of interviews in which. People talk about and at the at the time it was still fairly early in the in the show and so pr- it wasn't quite the phenomenon that it became, but um, you know you hear stories about actors who come on for one episode and the amount of pressure like when you're playing off of you know Michael Richards and Jason Alexander and Jer- you know you're playing off of all the you know not just one of the characters but three of them and your job you know you're again you're not just a, a you know you're not just a clerk you have to be funny you know just as funny as as you know the rest of them uh and you really kind of drive that scene and i think and of course you know you do a wonderful job but i was i was curious uh you know what kind of pressure is that uh to step in and and just kind of you know act with with the big boys or at the very least the leads
2: of this show you know that that isn't really where the pressure steps in. Okay, the pressure usually steps in earlier in the game because once you get into performing the show, mm-hmm. whether I was doing a fight scene with Mel Gibson in Bird on a Wire, <laughs> that's pressure because you're mm-hmm. doing with the, at that time the number one action star in the world and you're having a fist fight with mm-hmm. him, <laughs> and uh, and Mel goes like. You haven't done this very often, have you? <laughs> no, I haven't. And, in fact, I wasn't even supposed to have the fist fight with Mel. Uh, somebody else was supposed to have it. But they switched deaths at the last second. So, you know, uh, it was supposed to be uh, Bill Duke mm. that right. was supposed to have the fist fight with Mel Gibson, but he didn't want to swim. So, he didn't want to get in the piranha tank. So, they switched deaths. I was supposed to be getting eaten by the Jaguar. Oh, okay. So, they switched it and they gave Bill Duke that death and had me getting eaten by the Jaguar. Uh, I know
1: I have not seen Bird on Wire,
0: but I, I think I need to make it a priority all of
1: a sudden. Just, <laughs> but, but with, I with think, so- I think I think uh, Bill Duke needs to start doing the Duke Files podcast <laughs> yeah. because he's, that guy has had an interesting career. Yeah, I'll say. Uh,
2: the, uh, with Seinfeld. I knew I had seen Jerry Seinfeld for years and years and years. And Mm. I knew who he was. In fact, when I was in Dallas, Texas, I went with my old girlfriend to a club on Halloween night to see Jerry Seinfeld. And he must have been a teenager. And I said, oh, I know this guy. This is hilarious. He does the jokes about the socks trying to escape from the dryer. (laughs) This guy's hilarious. And he was hilarious. And uh, Mark Hirschfeld was head of uh, Mm. talent I, well, at that time, I guess he was just casting director for Seinfeld. Hmm. And so I got a call from Mark, and I had, I was, it was around the period of time I was finishing Groundhog's Day. I had finished Groundhog's Day, and I was about to start a new movie for Columbia called Calendar Girl. Mm-hmm. And in the movie Calendar Girl, I played a gangster who had a deaf and mute brother. And so they told me for the role, I was going to have to learn sign language. And they hired sign sign language teachers who were going to teach me for six weeks. And I'm thinking, like, six weeks to learn, like, sign language that Mm. you talk to with your brother your whole life? Oops. You know, (laughs) I smell egg, omelet, seafood, omelet all over the place on this one. And so in my head, I was thinking, okay, one way I could get around this is what if I just tell the people on Calendar Girl that I made up – That my brother and I grew up, and we made up our own signs. (laughs) So I just make up my own signs all the time. And so I'm practicing a speech from Calendar Girl where I'm going like, hello, brother, how are you? And I get a call from Mark Hirschfeld. And he said, Stephen, we're right down the street from you. We're at CBS Radford. Uh, We're doing this show called Seinfeld. And I go, oh, yeah, yeah, I know who Jerry Seinfeld is. I love him. He said, can you come down here right now? We're, having a, we're doing a part, and we're not sure how to make it funny. And why don't you come down and see if you can make it funny? Hmm. So I went down there and rode my little bike, actually. It was right down the street from where I lived at the time and met with Mark and Jerry. Now, there, Mm. Tyler. (laughs) Once again, to the studio audience, I am pointing at (laughs) Tyler. It's violently pointing. It's very... That is where the pressure is. Mm -hmm. Because you're in a room with sitting, just like the three of us are sitting now, with Jerry Seinfeld and Mark Hirschfeld, and they said, so how are you going to make this funny? Hmm. And so I immediately said... What if Tor Eklund is someone who does sign language with everything and I use the sign language yeah. I was developing for Calendar Girl and Jerry goes, Yeah, that's funny. Hmm. Okay, you do that. Uh-huh. So that's <laughs> how that I got that part and that's how that came about. That was just fortuitous.
1: That that brings <laughs> us to another thing actually. You 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 teach comedy and improv. Yes. And we've been talking about so much of your uh you know. Crying and and all that, and, and and being a KKK leader and burning, mm-hmm. but we haven't really t- gotten into uh, the comedy part of things. Is that uh, I'm not really sure how to how to get into the question, but uh, well, well, I think comedy again
2: is something that's very much like acting for too many people. Is that you take pasta and you throw it against the wall, and if something sticks, it's done, mm-hmm. you know. But there's there's methods of approaching comedy. And there are theories of approaching comedy that actually work mm-hmm. and that if, if you know what those are, it's easier to improvise in a situation and be more successful. I mean, nothing's 100 mm-hmm. percent, but you could be more successful at, in, in doing what you want to do if, for example, you know your function, you know what you're doing. Uh, for example, comedy cannot exist really without meaning. Mm -hmm. There has to be meaning in a scene. Mm -hmm. And so you can't have people that are just, quote, trying to be funny or trying to make the audience laugh. That's death. But an audience always kind of responds to truth. So if you find what the truth in the scene is and just say it— at the right way, at the right time, it will be funny. And Jerry Seinfeld has made an entire career uh-huh. out of that. Mm. Like with Larry David saying, how many napkins do you need to eat a sandwich? <laughs> you know, you need a bath towel. <laughs> you know, he's not telling any jokes. Mm. The guy's a sloppy eater. You know, and he's just telling the truth. Uh-huh. And, 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 and so in my comedy class, I take different comic theories from different periods of time one from aristotle believe it or not Mm -hmm. my buddy aristotle one from sigmund freud believe it or not it's one that really works really well and and from different people throughout history and then we do improvisations based on their comedy theories Mm -hmm. and people think like oh this is easy Mm -hmm. i can do this and then they become more comfortable mm-hmm. if they see like, oh, I'm the one who's supposed to provide the meaning. So I've got to be real mm-hmm. and let the other guy go, which is why Bill Bill was so amazing in Groundhog's Day. He knew when to stuff the cake in his mouth because he mm-hmm. knew Andy McDowell is, was bringing the meaning of that scene. Mm-hmm. She brought the reality so he knew he could be crazy, but he knew in my scene. He had to bring the reality of the scene and mm-hmm. he knew to play it real and because we were glomming on to Bill, we were living our lives through Bill, not through me in mm-hmm. Groundhog's Day and he knew that because yeah.
1: Bill's a natural genius. That, yeah. I, I want to mention, I don't know if I have a question, I just want to mention that as much as Seinfeld is, one of my, is my favorite sitcom of all time, I think my favorite sitcom guest appearance of yours is probably Will and Grace because uh, that's, uh, and that's, talk about like a, uh, sort of a truth and meaning. I mean, that your character in the 22 episodes has a little bit of an arc where if I it's been a while since I've seen it, but if I remember correctly, the character is kind of the butt of the joke, the whole episode, and then kind of has the moral victory at the end. Yeah, it it was, it was the whole, and again, talk about a
2: brilliantly written show. Mm-hmm. And there is a despicable Hollywood story for you too, hmm. because that all came about with friends hmm. in that, uh, Friends writings, the the executives of Friends were basically pushed off of the show by the network who wanted to own more of the show. Hmm. They wanted to renegotiate the deal. and And basically, the network kind of took over the show from the men who created it. And in doing so, they took the entire writing staff of Friends and moved it over to Will and Grace. And Will and Grace suddenly went from a show... That was in the maybe top 25 to the top five. Uh-huh. They got the Friends writing staff. And it was a remarkable script. But in the story, I play a guy who is the butt of the joke, uh-huh. like you say. And and the whole thing is, is you know... The, Will is is saying, Don't be nice to strangers. You know, you don't don't be nice to people on the elevator. Don't like invite them over for dinner. You don't know who these people are. They're crazy. And I seem to be a perfectly nice guy mm-hmm. who who they're rude to throughout the entire <laughs> show. You know, they keep inviting me over for lunch and then uninviting me, inviting me over for drinks and then standing me up and everything I'm saying, leave me alone And you know, get away from me. And then finally at the end they said, you know, we have really We've been dicks to this guy. We ought to go over and just apologize. And they come over, and I'm having a tea party with, like, all these stuffed animals. And they're going, hello, welcome, have a seat. And it turns out that I am absolutely crazy. <laughs> nice. Yeah, Yeah, that was nice.
1: But uh, I guess my what I take away from that episode is how, how much crazier are you than, than Will and Grace? <laughs> you know? I mean, yeah, you're having a tea party with stuffed animals, but... You're not doing anybody any harm. Yeah. No. yeah. no, that's right. You know, that's that's the that's
2: kind of uh, the great writing of it is that they set me up as the meaning uh-huh. of the mm-hmm. thing. They set me up as the world as the meaning, mm-hmm. and everybody feels put upon. They they're on my shoulders, and then at the end, they're uh, right right with, with Will and Grayson going like, "No, they're right. People are crazy. Yeah. Stay away from this guy."
0: You know, it's interesting. Um, the the idea of of the meaning uh, is it's something that I've I remember I, I've been saying for a long time. Not those words. But I I always referred to it as the entry point. That an audience needs an entry point, which is one of the reasons why the. <laughs> The sec- well, one of several reasons why the second and third Matrix films don't work, nah. and 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 uh, are you going into your Deadwood bird? Okay, um, and and one of the reasons that the that the new Star Wars movies don't work either. Um, I was watching Star Wars actually just today, uh, the uh, New Hope, um, and uh, you know, like Han Solo. And Luke Skywalker, Walker, to a certain extent, like they're the entry point. They are the people that the audience can sympathize with, and thus Obi Wan Kenobi can say whatever crazy. I mean, it, it's it's not even really just comedy; it can be anything, you know. Neo and the Matrix, we can relate to him, and his mist and his is like this is all a little insane, and I agree that it is insane, and thus Morpheus is free to just be whatever he needs to be. Um, so it's you know it, it's interesting. It's important to to know what little acting i've done um i don't mean to you know brag but as listeners know i did win best actor in the state of missouri in the year 2000 um <laughs> what was the uh, role high, high school uh actor. henry ii in uh, lion in winter
2: oh my god that's right standing at night i gaze from my window <laughs>
0: um anyway that's you know what that my, i repeat that so much that it's no longer a point of pride it is literally a punchline at this point <laughs> well um, let me ask you let me ask okay. you
2: I mean was there I I was in those competitions is there mm-hmm. more pressure than that Uh no <laughs> I, I mean. think I I mean I look back at those high school drama tournaments that was some of the most excruciating pressure yeah. because what the cutting as I in my day had to be 45 minutes Yeah it was uh, I think I think basically it had to
0: be about 40. And so we wound up just doing the first act from Lion and Winter.
2: And and if you go over, you are disqualified. Yeah. And and, and, and if you're doing a comedy, which you weren't, but if you're doing a comedy mm-hmm. and you get laughs, that really affects it. And we had timekeepers on both sides of the yeah. stage telling us, like, curtain comes down at this point. Yeah. It was excruciating. found I found myself
0: wondering. To a certain extent, the idea of... Because I did monologues and they had to be like 10 minutes long and stuff. And and uh, and I found myself wondering, like, what is this... I understand as a competition you need rules and everything. But, like, what is this teaching young actors that, like... All right, just get to it. All right, let's... <laughs> no, no, no. You're not... A, explore in rehearsal. All right, just, uh, you know... Oh, you're feeling a new emotion that you haven't felt before? Uh, well, I hope it's under 30 seconds, you know.
1: Uh, it uh, Those things always frustrated me immensely. Um, well, we should uh i know you You have a hard out time we should start wrapping mm-hmm. up but uh I, I i couldn't get to this episode without mentioning you which before we started uh recording we were talking about our, our friend, friends of the show the sklar brothers mm. and they had a show uh which listeners to the show know because i never not talk about it this show called cheap seats on espn classic mm-hmm. and you steven did uh we were involved in a in a sketch that they I did. I did a cheap seats, and we filmed some of it in our backyard. Uh, I did uh
2: <laughs> wild hogs with the Sklar brothers. I have I have like two kind of worlds with the Sklar brothers. One is hanging out with them and working on wild hogs with them, mm-hmm. in which they're the two nicest guys in the world. No. completely funny, completely professional, all this kind of stuff. And, you know, they, and I'd seen them on Law & Order, Mm. you know, and I'd seen them on Entourage. Right. You know, I did not, I had never seen them do stand-up, ever. So that was my vision of the Sklar brothers, of how I knew them there. And then I saw them in stand-up, and it was an entirely different world. They're the two, I mean, it's the funniest thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I was on the floor for about 30 minutes straight just they are brilliant yeah. yeah
0: they really i mean i'm sure some of it is by virtue of them being twins but they just they have such a connection with each other that they absolutely i mean i've i you know J, uh, uh, david and i enjoy stand up and so uh, you you'll see like you know like a double act from time to time and uh, and it's like yeah that's funny but like these guys uh, and of course i mean they grew up together so they have they have shorthand and all that but just they it's one of those acts where it's like I can't imagine this not being two people, and often a double act could be one person um, when it's just straight stand-up. Uh, but with with them, they really know how to utilize the fact that there's that it's two of them, and the because often they'll do like little scenes, you know, they the scenes maybe forty five seconds, and they set it up, and then they do the scene.
1: But man, it is it's hilarious, and we the actually, rhythm, the yeah, rhythm. Oh, it's
0: the best, yeah. I, well, li-
1: listeners, you uh, I just posted the audio from our most recent live comedy, Battleship Pretension Live, yeah. at, at Meltdown Comics, uh, so you if you—you you won't get the full experience just listening, but right. you can uh, listen to the scholars who were the, the headliners of our set, and actually re- revealed, um, hinted, I should say, in the panel that Cheap Seats may finally be coming to DVD mm-hmm. sometime Hooray! soon. Uh, I guess there have been a lot of rights issues with the clips really? they, with, oh. with the clips that they used oh yeah uh but uh hopefully that'll happen soon and then everyone can enjoy the the um it was a it was a commercial for a bar that character actors use to gain weight Yeah, yes. <laughs> and it did Stephen Stephen yes. and mc gainey mc gainey because <laughs> <laughs> uh, i think your testimony was like you know i'm Stephen Tobolowsky i've been in Forty movies or something and then later in the sketch it cuts to mc Gainey and he says uh i'm into mc Gainey, and i've been in way more movies than <laughs> Stephen toveloski <laughs> <laughs> um yeah oh. it's uh
0: yeah i do i uh go and listen to the 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 live show maybe skip that first 10-15 minutes that's fine no we were fine <laughs> uh, I'm very tough. I'm very tough on this, David.
1: But, uh, yeah, let's let's wrap it up. Okay. Um, Stephen, where can be, I know you have your, your spiel memorized from the Tobolowski Files, which everyone, by the way, should be listening to. Absolutely. If they're not. Where can people find you?
2: I think uh, certainly the Tobolowski Files, which you could find at com, mm-hmm. and listen to David Shin's stuff there, too, which is awesome. Yep. Uh, Tobolowski Files is also at iTunes. Uh, you could contact me directly at Tobolowski at Gmail. Dot com and I'll do like I do on the Tobolowski bus. It's S T E P H E N T is in Tom, O B is in Boy O L O W S K Y. The Russian oh, spelling <laughs> uh, I had to
1: I had to refrain from actually mouthing the words yes, i And, and to it also
2: I'm at uh, Twitter.com twitter slash Tobolowski and facebook.com at Stephen Tobolowski.
0: Um, now, real quick, uh, I just wanted to. It, it's come up a couple times in this episode, and I just want to make sure that, uh, you know, if ever you come back on the show, do David and I have permission to call you Tobo? <laughs> I've heard it a couple of times, and admittedly, they're from, they're from old friends. Okay. And I probably won't even if you give me permission, <laughs> but, uh, but I, I want to be able to call you Tobo at some Absolutely, point.
2: Absolutely, but just know <laughs> that some people may think it's my son. Oh, oh okay. all right. Yeah, because because okay. he, when I was doing the red carpet for okay. Glee, they at the premiere of Glee, they the first camera that hit me, they go, "Is your son's name Tobo?" <laughs> and and I go, "Yeah." They said. He's dating my daughter, (laughs) and I'm going, oh, (laughs) yeah, my son is a heterosexual menace. uh, They call him Tobo. Yeah, but absolutely, guys. We're on Tobo basis now. Now we're talking. All
1: right. Um, Now uh, Before we sign, we we get to all our information, I do want to mention uh, Comic-Con is coming up in just a couple of weeks. We're going to be down there. Are you going to be there, Steven?
2: I'm going to be there Thursday and Friday. Really?
1: Okay. Well, here's here's what I'm saying is uh, well, we want to have a Battleship Retention Meetup mm-hmm. on Thursday. Uh, now, of course, I'm going to ask you to be there, but you probably can't. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I figure if I put the pressure on you with the <laughs> entire podcast audience listening, you can't. You can't help but say yes. But no, um, <laughs> no I, I had no idea you were going to be there. That was that was not the point. Um, we want ha- we want to have a Meetup on Thursday night. We haven't decided what time, but having just recently attended the film spotting meetup mm-hmm. which is a much more <laughs> successful podcast than we are and there were still me a handful of people i'm not expecting a lot of people to come out mm-hmm. for the battleship retention meetup just at just maybe a half dozen or so so i, w- I want to I, I think i'm going to settle on this bar called the bitter end which is a place that i usually have a few scotches every time I'm in san diego um and it's it's up uh uh it's deep into the gas lamp but it's on that main that main strip that leads straight out from the, I guess, Fifth Street is what it's called. Yeah. That leads straight out from the convention center. So if you want, if you're going to be there, you want to meet up, um, do me a favor and get a hold of me at twitter.com slash the pretension or david at battleship and I'll organize it, set up a time uh, that we can meet up at the bitter end and have a few drinks uh, mm-hmm. and all that. So. All right. Now then. That's that. Get a hold of me. Uh, you can find us at com or in iTunes under Battleship Retention. You can, as I said, follow me on Twitter at Twitter.com slash pretension or email us at David at com or Tyler at com. You can follow Tyler on Twitter at Twitter.com slash lessons, which is the official po- uh, Twitter for his other podcast, More Than One Lesson, which you can find at MoreThanOneLesson.com or in iTunes under More Than One Lesson. And you can find my other podcast, the TV review podcast, previously on by searching Previously On in iTunes. Man, every you know, here's the thing. I
0: realize you're the one saying it, but every time after you're done, I need to take a deep breath. <laughs> like, it just, it really, uh, man, that exhausts That me. was
2: awesome, <laughs> just sitting in the room with that. I feel like I'm sitting with Kreskin or something, <laughs> amazing Kreskin, like you've been Spoons.
0: Um, all right. Well, uh, Stephen, thank you very much for being My on. My pleasure, guys. So, and thank you guys for listening. We'll Bye. get you next.
1: Hang on. Oh, I'm sorry. You said you have you have a line. I'm going right.
0: to cut that right out. Okay. All right. We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye.